My thing would be, I'm always a little hesitant if I'm buying a property and the majority of the time I'm thinking I'm going to Airbnb it or short-term rental it. Because obviously with COVID, the beginning of COVID, we found that was a little bit flawed. And now if it's outside of a metro center, it might actually be a very good model. But it's something where, especially when you're going abroad, if it's for a short period of time, it's usually better renting. But I usually will pass it to tell them to find a professional. And you've got to do the same thing like you're investing here in the United States, even if you're a U.S. resident. You've got to have your whole team set up. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Charles Carrillo from the Global Investors Podcast. Charles is a multifamily syndicator, a real estate investor based in Tampa, Florida, and he hosts the Global Investors Podcast, a show for people outside the U.S., whether it's expats or non-U.S. citizens who want to invest in the U.S., and that's what we talk about today, because I know from uh, multiple conversations I've had with uh, some of you out there, we have folks listening exactly like that. And that's what we're getting into today, how people can do that, different asset classes and strategies that you can pursue to invest in in U.S. real estate. I think it's definitely a great opportunity. I still believe in the quality of U.S. real estate, generally speaking, as an investment class. We still have some excellent fundamentals and happy to have non-US money and people interested in investing in our real estate. Still think we have great opportunities and that's what Charles specializes in, helping other people get into US real estate investing. So we talk about some of those details today, how you can do it, things you need to get into place, what to look for, how to do that due diligence, all those great things. Love it. Charles and I talked for, before we hit record, we talked for about 40 minutes about traveling and realize, oh man, we got to hit this record. We could talk all day <laughs> about uh, just international everything. And uh, he's an interesting guy, knows a lot about all these topics and he can help you or any of your friends out there who want to invest in US real estate. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Vogt. I'm a real estate investor, a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return love learning new things, love talking about real estate investing, obviously, and both of those are covered today with Charles Carrillo. Without any further ado, here we go with the interview. Charles, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on, Taylor. Oh, it's great talking to you. We've been talking here for almost 40 minutes and I realized, you know, we we better hit record and, you know, get something on the books for our our listeners. We could we could talk for hours. But uh for our listeners out there who don't know who you are, don't know your story, can you tell us about, you know, your background, your business and what you do? Yeah, sure. So like a quick little background on myself. Um I'm originally from Connecticut. Uh my dad was a real estate investor since like the 80s in multifamily and commercial. So I grew up in the business of uh I guess you would say you know, during elementary school and middle school, going to properties and my dad talking to contractors and brokers and all that stuff. And I started investing in real estate right after I got out of college and uh, about 15 years ago. And um, multifamily, I purchased the multifamily. Now we call it house hacking. But um, back then it was just living one unit and rent out the other two. And that was in 06. So not the best deal I ever got. But a couple of years later, at the end of 08, got another multifamily. And at that time, I really kind of knew what I was doing. And uh, I managed that for about six years. I bought a small commercial mixed-use property a year or so after that and uh, kind of grew from there. And now I've been in Florida since 2012. And we really focus now on syndications. We do some smaller multifamily stuff still. And I have... Uh, 
my old portfolio back in Connecticut. I have it professionally managed, but down in Florida, we're really mostly focusing on syndication, 75 plus unit um, properties or portfolios. And, um, and then also we, we look for smaller multifamily in a couple different counties down here. Awesome. Great. And you have a podcast, which is one of the things that, you know, I want to talk about today is, is the topic of your podcast mm-hmm. and what you discussed there. Can you tell us about your show? Yeah. So my show is called the global investors podcast, and it is, we talk about real estate investing and the twist on that is it's us real estate investing, but I have about half of my listeners on that show are based uh, outside the United States, whether they're expats or whether they're just foreigners that are interested in investing into us real estate. So we cover a lot more topics and um, the majority of the shows are for US investors and international investors. And then I have some really shows that are completely for really foreign investors. And it kind of gives you um, kind of a guidelines of how you would invest in the United States, have professionals on that actually have clients that invest in the United States. And since there's so much, the first thing was I was running a different business years back, which my brother runs now. And I was spending a lot of time in Europe and people would always ask you when you're out, lunch or dinner with them, the clients and partners, how do I invest in you? Because they ask you what else you're doing. I'm like, oh, I'm investing in US real estate as well. How do I do it? And I had no idea. So when I was going to start a podcast, I was like, this is a great topic to start because most people don't know the ins and outs of it as a foreign investor or even being a foreign expat, right? There's a lot of different nuances that you have to uh, review with your professionals in both countries now, since you are now in two countries. And um, that's kind of what we go over on the podcast. Awesome. That's great. And that's just a give the listeners a clue in. We were talking about international travel here yeah. before we hit record. So you clearly you know, have a, a passion for international business and travel and just the everything related to that different culture. So you know, that's fantastic. And I wanted to, we have listeners of this show who live outside the United States or currently live in the US and are in the process of becoming expats. And I talked with one this morning who you know, it's tough to decide what to do as a real estate investor who's outside of the States and wants to invest. You have a lot of options, notes, turnkeys, syndications, and on and on and on and on. And, um, you know, what are your thoughts about that? And, you know, getting over some of those difficulties, you know, for international investors trying to decide what to do. Yeah, definitely going to passive is a whole different mindset because if you're listening to any kind of like most like these gurus that are trying to sell you a program or anything like this. And they're going to tell you, oh, real estate is get out of your nine to five. It's all passive, blah, blah, blah. And it's not. I mean, you're buying, if you've ever owned a small multifamily property, it's, in the, it's a, you've bought a business, right? And that yep. business can be, if it's done correctly, it can run semi-passively, right? When I say semi-passively, you're dealing with what we call asset management, which is where um, I'm speaking to the property manager, depending weekly to monthly, depending on how large and how in-depth the project is and the property is and the stages of where it is in the renovation. But the thing though, is that I don't have a problem doing that. You know, That's a semi-passive kind of thing. You, when you're going full passive, or if it's something where you're not going to be around or available for pretty much any part of the, the, the term of that investment, there's a few different kind of situations and models that you can kind of go after. And I know a lot of people do turnkey investing and it's something I've never done. And the main reason about it is not saying anything good or bad about it. It's really saying that when you're doing turnkey investing, after you've purchased that property from the turnkey specialist, the value, the majority of that value has already been created. So if they bought a property for 60 and you're buying it for 90 and they put $15,000 into it, um, you know, you're buying it for the retail price there. And if obviously there's more work to be done when you're doing the value add process, but you have a lot more value that's created right away 
for that time during the renovation. So that's one thing that someone has to understand. And if they're fine with it, that's fine. It's also the earthing too. That's the semi-passive investing um, because you're going to be dealing with a property manager. You're going to be making decisions on what property to buy. You're going to have to do a lot more research. There's a lot of due diligence. I mean, just because the property is turnkey from the beginning, and doesn't mean that you're not going to have to do anything after you buy it. There might be things that you want to change. I've purchased properties before that I still own today, multifamily properties that were considered, I would consider almost turnkey where, um, you know, it was uh, property was almost finished. There's a few things I had to finish up and you had to do and, um, you know, stuff like this. And you still have work to do in properties where you consider that they've been renovated or where they've, um, you know, considered to be turnkey. So it depends on for the investor, how much active they want to be. And how passive they want to be. When you're getting into the syndication model, uh, when I invest, when I invest passively in syndications, because I still do it now, even be an active investor on syndications, is that um, you're able to, you know, you're able to tap into another professional's kind of whole circle and realm of what their competitive advantage is. So I can just have a set amount of money. I can go to a professional that's been doing it for a decade plus. And I can like tap into what they're doing, tap into their contacts for property management, for sourcing through the brokers, from them raising money from other investors. So I'm getting into larger projects that I wouldn't have access to. Um, and these, all these things happen. And your syndication investing is really the only real, I feel, fully passive investment that you have out there when it comes to real estate, other than like REITs or something. But because you're able to individually review every, pro- every property and say yes or no. And then, I mean, I probably spend an hour a year reviewing my passive investments, unless, you know, five, five, five minutes a month, um, unless there's an issue and I'm writing an email back or something like that. But normally, I mean, it's a normal thing. There's ups and downs. And if you're just kind of going on that line that they've kind of outlined to where your end goal is, um, I mean, that's what it is. It's not going to be, you know, every investment's not going to be a straight line to a uh, higher NOI. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So I appreciate that. And one thing that I've found over the years of being in the syndication space is how many uh, active syndicators also passively invest in other syndicators deals that, you know, they're for want of a better term, they're drinking the Kool-Aid, they're fully on board and they want to keep their, their money working in this strategy and these types of asset classes. I also wonder if you've ever dealt with or considered, you know, the opposite direction. If you've had someone who's in the U S say, Hey, you're the global real estate investing guy. I want to, I like vacationing in France. Can you help me buy a rental property in France so that I can get some theoretical tax benefit, uh, from my travel to France or whatever, for my annual vacation <laughs> trip. Do you ever get that question to come up? And if so, how do you handle it? Um, I've really, I've gotten it a couple times and I've just, I've, you know, you, you just really have to pass it on to professionals and be like, Hey, you've got to find a professional. I don't have professionals in, in countries, other countries that are, uh, really focused on their own. If they want to go there for a vacation kind of situation, if you're going there to move there, I always just suggest if you're, my thing would be, I'm always a little hesitant if I'm buying a property and the majority of the time I'm thinking I'm going to Airbnb it or short-term rental it. Cause obviously with COVID, the beginning of COVID, we found that was a little bit flawed. And now if it's outside of a metro center, it might actually be a very good model. But it's something where, especially when you're going abroad, if it's for a short period of time, it's usually better renting. But I usually will pass it to tell them to find a professional. And you've got to do the same thing like you're investing here in the United States, even if you're a US resident, you've got to have your whole team set up. So you're going to go over there, you're going to find someone that obviously will speak 
your language, uh, both in your mindset, both language wise, as in like English, but also in the sense of like, they understand your mentality coming from the US and how it's going to differ from being over there. It's like one of the things is like people coming here from Russia, they understand when they're buying here in the United States, usually a lot of your appliances are already in your apartments, right? When you're buying down here, you buy a condo in Miami. When in, in Russia, that's not how it is, right? It's one of the things where hmm. you're outfitting a lot of the those type of appliances and everything yourself beforehand or after you purchased it. So just that small kind of uh, twist is something that you really have to look into and research prior to doing it. But uh, it's usually on money coming to the US where my expertise shines. Gotcha. Gotcha. I just want to make sure because I feel like, you know, people here international, they're going to try to get some better treatment for their their vacation or, or whatever. But uh, personally, I'm of the mind that, you know, the market is so good, generally speaking, for investing in the United States. There's no need to, you know, invest out of the country. We can invest here, make cash flows and vacation where we want a vacation. But that's just my uh, my thought. Now, somebody coming to the U.S. investing in syndications. You know, I can imagine it's pretty difficult to do any kind of due diligence or to you know really feel you've vetted syndicators and and markets and done all of that due diligence. What are your recommendations as far as you know deciding which sponsors or deals or markets or or whatever to invest in, especially for somebody who you know might not be able to get to that market or area and check it out on their own uh, very easily. So I have people that will reach out to us that are both looking to actively invest. And the majority of the people that reach out are actively, they're thinking about actively investing. And I don't think they understand how difficult that is, even as being a US citizen living. I mean, even if you live in the same town as your investment and you have a full-time job and an occupation and you're trying to now become a real estate investor actively. But uh, a lot of them that come in passively, it's really just it's a lo- it's a long term process where, in the sense that uh, if you're coming in, I say you know we can send you out different links to uh, CPAs, uh, you know accountants and um, attorneys that work with international investors regularly, and uh, a lot of them speak a number of different languages, which you can actually uh, speak to them if you have a different language that's uh, more comfortable for you, and they can point you in the right direction and they can kind of fill in a lot of the. Uh, the the nuances that you might you might not be aware of right when investing in the US real estate and that's something that i really feel is important that they're going to be able to give you guidance here in the united states but also work dr- with your team um, legal and accounting team back in your home country to make sure that everything's on the up and up and some most people will set up some sort of entity here, and there's so many different ways of doing that. You know, the end will be an LLC, right? But it could be owned by a foreign trust, or it could be a U.S. trust. There's there's a lot of different tax laws for foreign investors than there are for U.S. investors. So it's something that they have to be aware of, and it also depends on how much they're investing and um, what their goal is with the property. If they're coming here just to buy a second home, completely different mindset than someone that's coming here and in trying to make passive income. And uh, what country are they coming from? A lot of countries, it's difficult to get money out of those countries, right? Um, Certain places in Southeast Asia, certain places in South America. So it's something that that's a whole different thing too. Like, how are we, how are you getting money here? What are you doing? And that's something where you're dealing with someone that's seasoned uh, as a professional in that area, right? And they can tell you how they would set it up. And this would be like an accountant or an attorney. And that's usually when people, People come to us, we kind of point them in the right direction and be like, hey, 
this is who you can use, speak to them uh, for doing this. And this is what we've seen before, but you might be in a different situation. And um, that's kind of how I like to welcome in new investors like that because it can it can vary so so uh, so widely. That's interesting that um, I guess it makes sense that it would be relatively you know harder or easier depending on which country you're coming from to get the money into the u s mm-hmm. and and make the investment. Speaking in you know general terms, which countries or areas would you say are the easiest to invest in the u s from? And which are strike you as the hardest? I mean, I imagine you know some that are impossible are probably like Iran and North Korea, yeah. <laughs> but you know, from a if diplomatic relations are fine, <laughs> which ones are uh, relatively difficult? Yeah, so they have a list, and you can Google it. It's called FACTA, it's FATCA, and it gives you like all of the countries that are unable to have business or banking relationships with the United States, and it's like Cuba, Democratic Republic of like uh, Congo, and like Iran and stuff like this. And, um, you know, if your country is not on there, that's great. That's number one. And then number two is that harder countries, I would say, would be Argentina. Um, That's a difficult country. China can be difficult. Um, It really just depends on, you know, like Argentina, they're very strict on having assets out of the country, Hmm. let alone getting the money out of the country. And you can, as like, as I understand, it's a very little bit amount of money, like a few hundred bucks, like a quarter or or a month or something, you're able to even transfer to another currency. Now, I don't know 100% about that. That's just one people I've spoken to that are based in that country and they've done the research on it. That could be correct. That could be a little bit off. But um, these are things that people don't think of when you're in the US. Or I think Europe is very friendly with working with the, Uni- with the uh, United States in the sense that we have a lot of banks that are over in Europe that are here in the United States. So that's another thing too, is that setting up, making sure you have rela- relations for your tax in legal. And then the other thing too is how are you going to, like we were talking about, move the money. And sometimes it's, you know, HSBC, Hong Kong, Shanghai banking corporation. So if you're in Hong Kong, you can easily, HSBC is just like Bank of America here on every corner. That's something that you can set up an account there. They're going to be more favorable for helping you and moving, uh, assisting with you with moving assets and stuff like that. And um, it's just like when we accept money, and I know a lot of syndicators reach out to us that might have a foreign investor. And when we're actually talking to them about it, it's something where, hey, you know, make sure you do not accept any money. And this is for anybody. Whatever you're doing, don't accept money from any foreign. I mean, if you're in a syndication, the money shouldn't be going to anyway. But your accountant, your escrow, your attorney, whoever is running your escrow account, don't let all the money has to come from a US entity, US person to your escrow account. Because you're now working as KYC, know your customer. And I'd rather have the money coming from a Wells Fargo, for instance, or any other US bank. Because whatever company, whatever banking institution that is, they have spent more money and more time building out their KYC than any other than you and I could ever do, right? So I can't check someone through a terrorist watch list, right? So for instance, <laughs> so things like, but Wells Fargo should be able to do that. So if the money comes from Wells Fargo, then it's something if I ever get a call or uh, something like this, and it's like, well, you know, the money came from this account at Wells Fargo using this entity and stuff like this, and you have some protection there. But- it's with everything happening now, and um, it's just everything is becoming, as the world becomes a much smaller place, and government is much more controlling and checking out on everything that's going on. Um, it's something that you have to be very careful with, with um, just how you're working with foreign investors, if you're interested to be on the active side of, uh, of a syndication. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the big banks, yeah, they have that, all the anti-money laundering divisions and everything that they they do. And speaking of Argentina, I saw recently, and this is a sign of the times, right? But I saw recently that the 
Google searches for Bitcoin are at mm. super all-time highs, specifically you know, everywhere, but specifically in Argentina. And I think that may have to do with currency devaluation mm. and you know their inability apparently to, to uh, change money and everything. It's mm. probably different treatment. But um, as far as you mentioned, it matters how much, uh, how many dollars you're basically looking to invest in the U.S. Is there a point at which you know under? Generally, it doesn't make sense. I mean, in syndication, syndication, you might have a 50K or 25K or 75K minimum, something like that. But, um, you know, I'm sure there are folks out there who don't quite have 25K that want to invest mm -hmm. in the U.S. Um, is there a threshold below that where it doesn't make sense? I mean, what's been your uh, observation there? It really depends on what your long-term goal is. I mean, people investing in real estate think most people understand, especially like in the in asset classes, Taylor, that you and I are in, right? Like multifamily and these other commercial assets. It's not a get rich kind of quick scheme. Mm -hmm. And it's something where it's long-term. It's five, seven years that someone's in a syndication for, maybe even longer, depending on where your project is with COVID. But it's something that the people have to understand this, number one. And then number two is that we're just getting set up if they're coming from a foreign country. It's going to cost a, a few thousand dollars, depending on how they get it set up to be able to invest. But the thing is, once they do that, once they, they're paying their accountant, they've done, they're paying their, you know, their their team in their home country, their team here in the United States and everything, it might take a few thousand dollars to do that, but it's also now you have an entity set up in the United States. So if they're investing, want to invest in one of my deals, they might want to invest and now they can invest in one of your deals or someone else. Like they've done that upfront work and the tax returns is going to be, the cost of it's going to be really the same if they have one K1 uh, or it's five K1s that come in at the end of the year. And so just like with anything, you get kind of the economy of scale. So if you're buying it for one deal, but you say, hey, I, my goal is to put park a million dollars over the next uh, 10 years in US real estate, okay, so it makes sense. If your thing is, I want to come here, and even if you start with 25,000, it's fine. If you don't mind paying the fees, perfectly fine. But if you have your if your syndicators open to working like that, because there's going to be a few more things on their end too that they have to worry about, like withholding and a few other things. So it's going to be more costly on their side. But it's something that if you're working with a new investor that's got a lot of potential, you might jump through those hoops to secure them for future investments where it might be larger into your deals. But I think it's just that it's it's your long-term goal. If you just have $50,000 and that's it, I mean, really, when you look at it, okay, I'm going to pay a 10% surcharge for doing this. And it might not be the right thing, right? Unless you're saying, I'm just going to roll that money over and all my returns over for, for the life of it. But um, it just depends on what your long-term vision is, I think. But most people I speak to, they're like testing it out and um, they are willing to go through the the four month process, let's say, to do an you know ITIN number, a tax ID number, and then do like an EIN, like they have an LLC or something like this, and go through the whole process that you have to to correctly be set up as a foreign investor in the U.S. And um, if they're willing to do that and they know it, I mean, it makes perfect sense to do it. But it's it's something you got to have that long term vision of what you want to do when you come to here. Nice, nice. Well, I like the the idea of long term vision. I think that's. Mm -hmm. uh, important no matter what you're doing. And I certainly appreciate that it is important for uh, non-US investors investing in US real estate. I like that. Clarify that it's not a get rich quick type of thing because it certainly isn't. And that is uh, not a good way to to make money in the long run, having that that short-term uh, short goal. Great. So right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Charles, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? 
Um, I bought a uh, fully vacant mixed-use uh, multifamily property back in the end of 09, and I, I, it was like four months on the market, five months on the market or something, and I bought it for like 28%. I put an offer in a 30% lower than what they were asking, and I bought it for uh, probably $0.28 cents on the dollar what it sold two years earlier because of the, the Great Recession. So wow. renovated it, fully rented it out within 90 days. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect buying opportunity. <laughs> I, I, I'm somewhat skeptical we'll ever see that good of a buying opportunity again. Who knows? But uh, that's awesome. On the other side of that, we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I would say the first property I purchased, it's just, we we bought it at the height of 2006 and it was fine. I, I, I lived there for a few years. So I kind of, you know, it, it now rationalizes what I was doing, but it's something that I got a little overhead with uh, how much renovations were required on it and didn't really know about it. And my dad was kind of coaching me from like arm's length on doing it. And I don't know, it's just, it's just something that you've got to do it and no podcasts and YouTube videos, all that kind of stuff is fantastic and coaching programs, but doing it is going to be something that you're going to learn from it. And I still, I keep track of everything. I make a mistake in real estate and in business and I run it on a, a word document and I kind of refer back to it regularly. And you can just, I filled up a lot of that page uh, to that deal. <laughs> nice. Well, it's it's good to uh, it's good to track your hard earned lessons. That's for sure because it can be even easy to forget those things over time. You know, it's good to keep them fresh in your mind and not make uh, some of those mistakes again. My favorite question here at the end of the show is: What is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I think um, one of the one of the main things when I, I think just really just being strategic about where you're going and what your goal is for it, and and then just making your decisions. So if you have a ten year goal, what's your ten year goal, and then working back and working that back and really breaking that down to what am I doing this week, and making sure what you're doing is actually in line with what your end goal is, um, and I, that's something that. I really, I didn't really do initially when I started investing and I've become much more strategic as I've gotten a little bit more experienced. And now I know what my 10-year goal is and I know exactly what I'm doing every week and what kind of KPIs I have to hit or I'm tracking them so I know that I'm making forward progress because I know that this is kind of the end goal. And obviously that's going to change a little bit, but if you're somewhat close or on the same kind of path you're, if it deviates a little bit, it's not a major thing. It's just a huge thing if it's in a 180 degree difference, right? <laughs> nice. I like that. And the, the, as the saying that's fairly popular these days goes, it, we overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what mm, we can yeah. do in a decade. And if you set that goal, you can really do some great things in 10 years. Charles, thank you for joining us today and bringing us all these lessons. If folks want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more, any of that good stuff, where can they find you? Yeah, so I do uh, free 30-minute strategy calls, and you can just go to schedulecharles.com, which just forwards to a page on my website, charlescrillo.com. And if you want to be active or passive, it doesn't matter. We can talk about real estate investing. I talk about where you are now, and uh, we can talk about some of those one, five, and 10-year goals. Nice. I love it. Well, thanks once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. We are now live streaming on YouTube as well. So if you'd like to join the conversation live, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show on YouTube. Hit the subscribe and the notification bell and smash that like button. 
and uh, we look forward to seeing you in the conversation in the future. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.